Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a podcast where two guys with a particular set of skills talk about theology or whatever else comes to mind. And now here are your hosts, Andrew and Ian. Well, howdy. Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a conversation about theology, the church, and the Christian life with a little nonsense in between. I'm your host, Yates. And this is Ian. And we have something of a downer. <laughs> uh, well, I guess it is, it's kind of a downer. It's a realistic uh, episode today. Talking about realistic rhythms. Realistic downer. Yeah, realistic downer. Talking about rhythms um, that the, the church uh, and every Christian community goes through. And, uh, you know, healthy things grow, but th- everything dies. And that's what we're talking about today. It's death and sickness. Even even this podcast someday will die. Hopefully, uh, hopefully someday later, it's the, uh, you can't even, well, maybe, maybe it'll live forever. I mean, it's in like the cloud, right? Uh, that is true. Actually, uh, That's uh, so thinking of the cloud, I read the verse when it said, uh, and Moses went into the cloud and he was afraid. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I feel oh, like that's dear. the life verse of everybody over 50. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Went to the cloud. <laughs> oh, it's like, so this place, funny. This place is scary. Well, so uh, NPR did a study. And uh, well, there was a study done and NPR reported on it about um, things you can learn about people with the fewest questions as possible. So you get like a maximum uh, understanding of someone with just the fewest questions, and they huh. one of the, one of the five questions was, uh, "Are you older than thirty five? And the reason they would ask that, or what that revealed, was, "Are you bad at technology?" Thirty five, and I'm thinking, well, so well. To be fair, <laughs> well, I have to describe to you every single time how to save the files, and well, you're right on that edge. So, well, yeah, yeah, there it is. There it is. That might be bad. I have broken four computers. I will say I've been at at the church I'm at now for almost five years, and I'm I'm batting a thousand for one computer one year. I'm thinking this is the year that I I make it the whole time through though. Um, I'm actually using a loaner computer right now. It's kind of embarrassing, but it is what it is. Um, uh, on, so many on computers. The of a, a funny life verses, by the way. I was mentioning to somebody that I I think that. Uh, so there's a verse in Job when he says, I will complain without restraint out of the bitterness of my soul. No, no, that's a bad idea. I feel idea. like that's actually most people's life verse. They just don't know it. <laughs> oh, gross. Um, uh, speaking of life verses, uh, I had a buddy text me a picture of his waiter's arm and be like, hey, do you know what this is? And it was Galatians 2.20 tattooed on a waiter's arm, but the waiter didn't know what it was. It was in Greek. Um, and I'm like, what? They got a tattoo of a... I mean, it was probably 20 words. It covered their whole arm from elbow to wrist, probably four or five inches wide. I, they didn't know what it was. Be- I've said this before, okay? <laughs> this is a public service announcement. If you're oh, going to get no. a tattoo in oh, Greek or no. Hebrew, first of all, stop. Don't do it. <laughs> but if you have to do it, please get somebody who knows the language oh, no. to verify. I I've seen... Um, I've seen at least once a person, um, so, like they did, so Andrew, so they did agapao instead of agape. So basically if, if for our listeners, um, a lot of verbs in Greek have like, there's like a phantom letter. It's like, they act like this letter is there. Even like a lot of verbs act like this letter is there and how they conjugate, but the letter actually is never there. 
And so when we in the lex in like our lexicons, we put the letter there just so people like know how it will act. And this person had instead of saying they wanted to think I think they wanted to say love, but they chose the verb to love, and then it had like this this letter that's only there in like lexicons. And I'm like, and I thought to myself, nowhere in the world I want to tell you that you're tattoo is wrong but that's just cruel so please just just get just get your tattoo checked by an expert yeah uh get your tattoo can talk you down from the cliff the psa yeah spade neuter your animals and get your tattoos checked um speaking of game show hosts uh, did you hear about uh trebek just announced yeah he's uh he's got i believe it's prostate cancer and he said i'm gonna fight it yes yes yeah he's finishing out the season um but man that is just is uh he he's part of the greatest generation. I don't care how old he is. That guy is a is a pillar of society. I yes. I feel like Barry Sanders. I feel like everyone reeled when they heard that Trebek is uh um is is got some health issue. You're like, what? Well, that means even- I'm mortal too. Oh my gosh. Hey, here's a fun since we're just since we're just uh, freestyling on on ga- uh, games here. So this is this is actually something I was thinking about yesterday, and I forgot to tell you that I was going to talk about it. Oh, so no. here, I here can't we go wait. with bated breath. So, so there's a there's a game that came out of Germany called Hanabi. Have you ever heard of, of Hanabi? Can you spell that in Greek? <laughs> I'm going to write <laughs> this down. Okay, so Hanabi is this little card game that came out of Germany and won a big award and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Oh, wow! And the the idea of it is that you um, everyone has a hand of cards and they're trying to play the cards and there's five different colors and you're trying to play the cards in order in uh, in each in these stacks. So one stack is blue and one stack is red and one stack is yellow and you're trying to play the cards one two three four five in these different stacks. The trick is you can see everybody's cards but your own. Oh, that's so interesting. Cards, the cards are facing away from you, so you're like, um, you can either, and then on your turn, you can either give people information or you can play a card. The problem is every time you give out a piece of information, so you're like, these cards are fours. You like you lose like a, a token, and then you know you can only give out so much information. So, mm-hmm. anyways, I was thinking, I was reading this article where Google basically suggested that Hanabi needs to be the next next benchmark for artificial intelligence learning. Uh, and they did a bunch of open source things so people can work on the problem. Because the problem is that the, the two major benchmarks for uh, AI learning so far have been Go and Chess. The problem is both of those are competitive and they're only two players. Uh, two, and so that doesn't really match where we want AI to go to be able to solve like cooperative problems. Hmm. So, uh, so I was thinking about this, and I and so this guy made the comment that there's two major ways that you basically uh, keep everyone on the same page in this game. One is you share information, which in the game is costly, and two is you have conventions. And I actually, so this is fascinating. So actually, I played this game uh, twice, and the, the and both after the second time, I swore I would never ever play it again. And the reason not wasn't that it wasn't fun, but the groups that I were playing with had played it enough that they had conventions about how you did stuff. So basically, you could share information and you could keep track of information without having to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. So you have all these conventions about when you draw a card, you put it here. 
then you should always do things in this order. So basically everyone could be on the same page with the minimal amount of information sharing, right? Yeah. And if you broke the conventions, it didn't matter if it was a perfectly legitimate way of play. Everyone was like, what are you doing? That's stupid. That's not how we do it, right? And I was thinking about how, like, this actually has a lot of, I think, interest as far as uh, church practice, right? So when you have large groups of people trying to work together, right, there's two ways you can stay on the same page. You can share information or you can have conventions. And by conventions, I don't mean let's all get together. I mean, like, this, you just have ways Although of doing Although churches things, right? do convent as well. They do, right. <laughs> Uh, well, sometimes they have conventions. Sometimes they have synods or presbyteries. We have synods in the Anglican Church. I think it was yeah. Word. Um, so, anyways, I thought. So, isn't this isn't that kind of interesting though? That this is like that developing conventions is a shorthand for humans to be able to sh- uh, be on the same page when communication is hard. And the reality is that communication between large groups is always hard. Yeah. And so you just come up. And so I actually think that this is a really important facet of church practice that we need to think about, right? That a lot of church practice sometimes is just conventions. We have conventions of this is how we do things. But how often when like you break, like somebody will break your convention. What are you doing? And your thought is that's wrong. Like that's crazy. Why? And the reality is like it may not be wrong. (sighs) It might be wrong or it might not be best. But like it might just be a different convention, right? But then sometimes – I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, uh, and that's important for all things. I think it, you see it a lot when people get engaged, and then all of a sudden they realize that their families had different conventions on how they do things, and you're, and oh man, there are huge train wrecks that can happen when when conventions are different. It's so true. I'm, I'm looking right now, and it is nine eighty nine Prime free one day to my location uh, for Hanabi card game. I might, I may get it. Uh, it's a right. nice little uh, kind of after, you know, if you, you know, if you've got a, you know, if you've got a significant other and you have a couple over and, you know, you can play a nice little, it's, uh, it's not bad as long as you keep in mind that people might do things different that you don't like. It's uh, not your convention uh, and you have to be okay with it. <laughs> well, so um, anyway, so, so I just, yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting just thinking about church practice about how much. Uh, sometimes things just seem totally wrong just because they're different than how we're used to uh, used to doing them. Yeah, it's funny how uh, in so many ways organizations and people just they just work the, the same way. So I think being a student of people um, is such a big part of serving and leading um, the church. If you don't know mm-hmm. who you're serving and how they'll respond and how they react and how I react. Uh, myself to what's going on, then I'm not going to be very effective. Especially as as churches get larger and larger, um, it some things happen that aren't intuitive, you know. So that's mm-hmm. that's clutch. Well, um, well, we're talking about um, man, we're talking about death this week. Um, I, you know, uh, we we hadn't planned. You and I had talked about doing baptism, but uh, um, yeah. Uh, I had, you know, I had a, a grandmother die um, in uh, Clinton, Missouri, and so I uh, took the hike. It was a um, sixteen-hour drive there, as the as the crow flies. It was a it ended up being about forty hours total in the car, a little over um, probably twenty two, twenty three hundred miles with two kids. But uh, yeah, so lots of thinking on those four those forty hours about death, and it's kind of like you know what, if this is on the mind, and we're gonna hit this eventually. Uh, let's do an audible. So I appreciate you letting me flex here 
and jump in with with death and dying. Yeah, and we've uh, we've had a personal um, a fa- kind of a family emergency that kind of brought up a similar sort of topic. Plus, um, we're recording this on the Thursday, the day after Ash Wednesday, which we'll talk about for a minute uh, later. And uh, and so d- I actually checked out a book on uh, was reading about uh, death and funeral practices, and so it happened. It happened to come together. So it's maybe not the most natural thing to do right after you know the two. The two great church practices of the, the Lord's Supper and death and funerals. Yeah. But, uh, and we, we do want to point out we're, we're going to be looking at this specifically through the lens of church practice. So maybe not talking abstractly and generally about death, but specifically kind of about church practices around death and sickness. Sure. And there's some, I mean, it's, uh, we're, I mean, we're talking about uh, kind of like spiritual disciplines for the church, like community disciplines. Um, and we all have if it's not a sacrament and some some religious some christian faiths believe that death and dying are a sacrament but if it's not even if that that uh well that, d- uh, death isn't a sacrament maybe what we do with <laughs> death isn't a is, yeah that's fair how we respond to death um is a is a, uh well it's right. it's certainly sacred um right I think well we least. talked about you know for me i gave my definition of sacrament as something that proclaims uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then the the um, presence of Christ in the incarnation, so the Word made flesh. And it is interesting to think about how do we deal with death and sickness in light of the Word made flesh, I think is an interesting question. Right? How do you have a sacramental uh, idea of church practice around death? Yeah, so uh, I think, so I actually had a really interesting conversation with some uh, college students today. Um, we're doing a study on Second Timothy, and uh, basically, it's the last letter that Paul wrote that we have, as, as far as scholars can tell. And um, it's very interesting. At the end, Paul talks about, um, "I'm charging you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, um, Timothy, keep the faith in light of His future coming. He's going to judge the uh, the living and the dead." And then he talks about all the things that Timothy can expect, to, how the world's going to trend down. People that generally are not going to be more responsive than they are um, at the time of the writing, and then later Paul saying, "Hey, I've I've done my work. I've finished the race. I've fought the fight, um, and I'm going to get a reward um, from um, mm-hmm. Jesus, the the righteous Judge, on that day when He appears." And it's it's interesting how um, d- immediately out of that conversation, um, there's conversation like we there wasn't a lot of clarity, and I feel like everyone had kind of a different view of. What happens to a person when they die? Um, hmm. Like, the, what's what is the experience of an individual at death? And so, if uh, what what would you say? Like, it was interesting to me. Like, there were there were probably five of us in the room, and at least three different views of what can I expect now um, if I were to die immediately? What now? What happens as a Christian? Uh, what what would you say as a Christian? What would happen? I feel like that's probably the clearest thing to me from Scripture. Um, as a Christian, what's your next experience? So I don't know. If <laughs> wow! I, there we go. No, no, no. Well, okay. So you say I don't know if I would hold to the believers having a conscious existence in a quote unquote heaven. So I don't know if you if if there's really any strong evidence for a conscious. Uh, for a conscious existence of believers in an intermediate stage until the general resurrection. 
So would you, is that, is that soul sleep? Is that what that's called? Basically you are. So that would be like the, so soul sleep is typically talked about as far as a general, like a long term. Uh, but I would say, so, okay. I know I'm kind of spitfalling because I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. Um, so, so here's the, here's the, um, here's just kind of a quick run through. And I, I think we've talked about in the past, the, uh, death in the old Testament, but just to give a recap of that, my understanding of death in the old Testament was that the death would go, the dead would go to Sheol, yeah. which, and within Sheol, there would be some sort of differentiation between the righteous and the unrighteous. And I think that the those but when in the resurrection Christ transported those in Sheol out into the heavenly paradise. So I think if a person dies without Christ, I think they still go to Sheol and probably have some sort of conscious existence. Uh, by the way, this is just a side note because someone asked me uh, not too long ago what I thought about if I thought ghosts were a thing, and I actually do think that there's enough evidence in Scripture. To hold that somebody who is not who is in Sheol, someone to so someone who died apart from Christ, could manifest themselves in our world. Only apart it's, from Christ. So, like Samuel, you'd say the witch well, of Endor, Samuel, but Samuel was in Sheol. But he oh, so he, of, you're saying he was apart from Christ? No, but be, but he was, but he he wasn't transported from Sheol until the resurrection. Oh, that's interesting. I've not heard that. That's very interesting. And so that's kind of my my, and I, I'm basing this a little bit on, um, at least from Jesus' parable, where he, where you know, Jesus at least presents in that parable, even though I don't think it's a full description of what happened to the dead, mm-hmm. the possibility of coming back from that. But it is interesting. This is just a side note. There's, I've never heard of anybody being like, "Oh, my grandmother was like the super righteous person who prayed all the time, and she haunts this house still." <laughs> that's like the true. people, like you know, you know, like oh, the old people that haunt anything are like terrible people. And so it's fun, like, hey, that's interesting. Like, that it seems to be possible to, like, if you're in Sheol, it might be possible to still participate. But if you're, but you're in a different sort of dimension or world, if you, uh, so let's say, I guess I would. I'm ambivalent. So part of me feels like if it seems like you had a conscious existence in Sheol, if you're righteous, you might have a conscious existence in heaven. But I think that there's enough to. There's a few other things that makes me wonder if. Those who sleep in Christ sleep awaiting the resurrection in the sense that they don't have that intermediate stage. They basically, you your experience would be dying and then immediately you would be at the resurrection, even though there might be a sort of temporal time in between. Sure. But, uh, you know, all of that does come down to kind of a fancy sort of way of saying I don't know, right? Like that's the best that we understand. Maybe there's a conscious existence in heaven, but I would say it would be a conscious not bodily existence, which would be a sort of different, very different sort of existence than we have now, and not, it would still be an awaiting for the resurrection. So, uh, we're now we're on a rabbit trail, but in like Revelation, where you know you got Bono singing, "How long? How long must we sing this song?" You got, I mean, the the people who were brutally killed because of mm-hmm. uh, their testimony. Um, would you say that's you read that more as a that's a. I mean, we're we're doing apocalyptic literature. This is metaphorical. Um, this isn't a taxonomy of the afterlife. Um, or would you say? Well, maybe I don't know. That's kind of a. I think it's Revelation six. It, uh, yeah, I'm trying to. Th- I'm, I'm looking at just to make sure. This is and this is uh, things I haven't looked at 
recently, so I want <laughs> to like, you know, make yeah. sure that I don't. I mean, um, you got about how long must we sing this song? How long? Right. That's, that's and great. so, but well, it, so it is interesting that it's the suhe, it's the souls of those who've been slaughtered. Yeah. For yeah, the testament. yeah. So souls could be shorthand for the whole person, or it could be an idea that they have a disembodied existence. On the other hand, they're also given a robe. So again, this is why I'm a little bit, a <laughs> yeah. little bit ambivalent. What exactly is going on there? Um, <laughs> like you I, have this robe. It doesn't say they're wearing a robe. Right. <laughs> so, He's like, hey, hey soul, there's a robe on the ground well, next to you. Maybe it's like when your parents, if your parents gave you a car when you're 15 and say, no, go get your license. And then you can drive this car. It's like, it's like, you what can, am I going to do with this? this you Why would you give this to me? You get your body back. It's terrible. Um, so, yeah. And so I think uh, I, I would tend towards saying that I think that um, I don't necessarily know if I, if there is a conscious existence for the for disembodied spirits before the resurrection, and part of that comes down to some theories I have about quantum mechanics and attempts at putting all that together. <laughs> quantum mechanics has to bring. Uh, okay. Well, so basically, right. the, the, the basically go. the point of that is that time is basically uh, a mind that you have to have a conscious in order to experience time, and so. Um, there's some evidence, for instance, that when people dream, they that basically they don't, um, they don't experience time in dreams because they're they're not experiencing the world through a conscious mind, which is needed to differentiate time in quantum models. So, anyways, lots of. <laughs> I'm gonna need a whiteboard. This is we're gonna make this a vlog. This is not gonna work. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, well, so, so anyways, I guess you can yeah. say at the very least, the Christian hope is that um, my body will be separated from my non-spiritual element, and there's going to be a weird, uh, non-originally intended state that ultimately I will be reconciled with a new body um, in whenever Christ returns. Yes, I think that is... And so I think that it's, I mean, what is clear in scripture is that death has been defeated as far as having any sort of ultimate power over us. Uh, but the the intermediate state is something we're going to want to talk about when we get to talking about funeral practices. So, uh, Ian, I think, uh, I mean, everybody dies sometimes. Everybody hurts. Hey, and then everybody, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody right. wants to die. Okay. Uh, y'all want to get on a, yeah, who wants to go to heaven? That's an old joke. Who wants to go to heaven? And little, everyone raises their hands except for a little boy in the front of the aisle. And, uh, <laughs> and the pastor goes, uh, son, do you, do you not, do you not want to go to heaven? And the, the little boy goes, well, yeah, but I just thought you were getting a bus to go right now. <laughs> it's like, ugh. That that might be uh, that might be true. Uh, so everybody everybody hurts sometimes. Uh, we could talk about hurting right now, sick people, or we could talk about uh, so let's let's dying go let's people. go let's go straight to death, right? So let's let's, let's, let's skip cut, over the sick. Let's cut the cord. The sick will always be with us. Oh boo! <laughs> so I've got in front of me this very moment, Andrew, a list of what I think are the three. Oh my. Uh, the three purposes or things that should be accomplished in a Christian funeral. Every good funeral 
Every good Christian funeral will have these three things. Okay. I'm going to see so I'm going to see I'm if the funeral I was at last week you can has decide this. if your you can decide I, if your grandma's funeral was a failure or not. Now, I've I've not uh I I've not heard these yet. So I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm not going to you have had no helpful feedback. I'm going to be raw, uncut, unfiltered. Andrew Yates. So good luck, Ian. May God have mercy on your soul. I feel like you're just describing a hippy beer. Okay. All right. See what happens. See what happens. All right. So the first one is uh, the idea of closure. Okay. So this is actually something that I I got, a thought I originally got from a book I had to read when I was coming back from the mission field. So by the way, the book is called. (laughs) That you got um, to read. Had the great pleasure of reading. I was told to read this book, and I'm glad I did. So the book, by the way, is called Reentry: Making the Transition from Missions to Life at Home. Um, and if you're ever, if you spend any amount of time um, working, or if you do, um, if you do ever, if you lead short-term trips, I, I do really recommend the book. By hmm. the way, um, so it was talking about closure, and and so the idea that it brings up, and I I think this is interesting, is people they don't close one section of their life and move on to the next. So then you end up with the people that like, you know, they're still reminiscing about how great college was and they're 45. Oh, yeah. They never. And so the um, the statement that I made that I thought was really interesting is you want your past to be a springboard for your future, not an anchor dragging you down. Right. And, that and, down, I, thought that that was, and I thought that was such a great statement. So. Um, closure, this is what it says cl- from reentry. Closure allows us to build on previous experiences instead of camping in the emotional fog of past memories. And I actually thought, I, mean, I, th- I think that's just so brilliant. The fact that we need, we need ways to put caps on things. And, and I think this is really important for any major life change, whether it's you're about to have your first kid or you're about to get married or your kid's about to go to college. That there needs to be kind of some sort of ritual, ritualized way where we close off that one, that part of, um, I guess of life, right? Okay. And so there, there are three, here are three things I think that are important for closure. Uh, one is mourning lost opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so sense. I think that that so this is going to come into the fact that I think sometimes we feel like this is the I guess the mourning part of Christians. That we need to understand that that at all point, whenever you move on to something else, that there is some loss to that, uh, that to that you know you won't get to go camping with your grandma again, right? That's a lost opportunity. Sure. And so that is important to allow us to mourn for lost opportunities. Um, the second is to confess guilt. That is interesting. Confess guilt. What what exactly do you mean by that? I mm-hmm. don't even know what that means. Yeah. So I think that. Funerals provide us an important time where people need to confess things that they feel guilty about about that person's life, so that they can provide closure and not move on with guilt. That is interesting. So, where do you get that idea? Where is that? Just you're saying your intuition about humans, or is that from a book or from the book, or what? Where does that come from? Uh, you know, again, this is this was just kind of my reflections that I wrote okay. down okay. about uh, from this reentry book. Confess um, so I think guilt. I think this is the idea of when something closes, we understand that like we that there are lost opportunities with that. Yeah, and there's a certain amount. There's a sense of loss that comes with lost opportunities, and I think one of those is that 
sometimes when when something comes to an end, you understand your regrets of things you wish to do differently. And mm-hmm. part of Christian Christian funeral should be we understand that guilt is not a good thing, and so we need to have an opportunity for people. And so this is actually something I don't see in funerals very often, but I actually think as pastors, we need to be aware that some people feel guilty about the person that's died. Sure. And and we need to provide a chance for them to have some absolution over that. Uh, I think it's interesting. I, w- I might think that is a subset of mourning lost opportunities. So like uh, you won't have a chance for reconciliation in this life. Um I did that. I mean, that you you don't have the opportunity for reconciliation for what's happened, or I mean, maybe those are separate, but I think those are certainly similar ideas. That's that's very interesting. I not, I've not thought of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some of this is actually I, I, one of the things I did, and um, I went through and was reading some of the some of the liturgy books about um, about what that we read in funerals, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm I'm kind of, I'm trying to find exactly what, but somehow somebody brought this idea down. And I wrote this down, so I, but I do think it's important, right? So like you need to go if you're burying a grandmother, you need to be aware as a pastor, or even if you're just a family member, that there might be a cousin or someone that that wasn't reconciled with that person, and now they part of your duties, I think, as a pastor would be that you don't want that person to have to live with unresolved guilt, so you need to help that person. Um, come to a place where they understand that God has forgiven them, even though they can't go and ask the forgiveness from that person. I think it's an important thing that we need to remember. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, I actually have a, a thought, but I, I want to hear your your. I want to let you finish before. before so that I was that in. was so that's part that's number one is closure. Um, so you can. Did you ever thought about closure, or did you ever thought about something else? Well, I think. Um, Communities, when there's a funeral, they it's a unique time to reflect on on what's most important. And um, the last funeral I was at, um, I feel like my fa- there were f- members of my family, and there's you know families are messy, and there was uh, there's five um, six children for my grandmother, and uh, there was one child that uh, ended up getting divorced, and there was there was a lot of questions about whose side are you on, what's going on. Um, and there's a lot of ambiguity there, but this funeral allowed, I think the siblings to have perspective and say, Hey, what's, what's most important? Um, we need to be moving towards the love and, you know, towards each other in yeah. love in spite yeah. of whatever's going on. We, we have to be able to love each other. Um, right. and I think, and, uh, and I think that's why I think just in general, whether you're buried, it's a funeral family member, or if you're a pastor, yeah. this, that you need to go into understanding that those, that. Uh, reconciliation and guilt are going to be a part of closure for anybody's life. Sure. Uh, because of just the way that death puts life into such a unique perspective. Sure. Yeah. So I would say um, there's there's perspective that a um, that a funeral should give. I think if you just like if it's all rainbows and butterflies and it's all platitudes and it's motivational speeches, I did it my way and that's it. Um, I feel like you've missed the opportunity to say, hey. Frank, this is a big deal. Frankie did say, I'll do it my way. <laughs> he did. Uh, that My last church I was at, they said that was the number one requested song at funerals. And they said, we're sick of this song. We're, was we're, this my life? Uh, I did it my way by Frank Sinatra. Oh, I, I was uh, well, I was quoting. Bon it's Jeff. my life and it's now never. No, it's uh, Frank Sinatra. Like Frank, well, he says, like, like Frankie said, I did it my way. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, but it's like, yeah, you did it your way. That's tragic. 
we don't want to celebrate that in a church. Yeah. So anyway, I think uh, uh, I think those things are true for individuals, but also for a community, which has yeah. I haven't I hadn't realized, but uh, um, yeah. that's and huge. It is right, and I think uh, I think providing and I think this is a service that um, services need to think about how to provide for communities chances for perspective reconciliation yeah uh, mourning and all of those things around the idea of lost opportunities and lost chances to reconcile and lost time and reconcile and all of that and so i actually think this is a side note i actually think if you're you know i think churches ought to have pastors there on site and encourage people to go and talk to the pastor if they feel like they need to um if they were not fully reconciled with the person that was deceased before they go to the funeral so that they can celebrate truly and not in guilt. Wow. Well, so, um, so something that I was really, I was kind of discouraged to hear this. Um, the last funeral I was a part of at, uh, at my church, uh, personally a part of, how, how did you participate in this funeral? Well, I was, I was a welcomer at the door. Let me thought, just say that I, I wasn't, he, <laughs> So I wasn't the last time I was dead. <laughs> I was an active participant, not a passive participant. Let me put it that way. Um, well, the last time I was there, presently there, uh, physically there, um, I was talking with a guy that worked at the funeral home, and he said that uh, um, we were talking about how the family chose to do some of the things, and he said that more and more and more families are doing the uh, like the viewing um, or the family time, like an hour, maybe an hour and a half or two hours before the actual funeral to minimize the mourning time. And I, I was actually kind of upset by that. I mean, like, okay, isn't that can, can I go on a quick? Can I go on a quick rant? Don't rant, but tell me what you're thinking. Okay, okay. So all, so dear listeners, I think on each one of these we're going to have brief moments, which I'm going to call things Ian hates. Okay, so here's a moment of thing Ian hates. I'm gonna. So here's an idea. Here's an, a concept I just want to introduce that's going to be important for all of these episodes, and it's a, it's a word. It's called lex orandi, lex credendi. Okay. What this means is a Latin term that means what we pray is what we believe. And the pur- the purpose behind it is that a lot of times people think, well, we believe these things and then we do practices that's along with what we believe. But the point is that is that a lot of times what we pray is more indicative of what we really believe than anything else. Or more broadly, what we do is more indicative than, than other things, right? If you want to know what somebody really believes, look at what they what we do as churches. And I read this fascinating mm. quote that uh, from the same guy I mentioned last time, Shemaman. What a uh, guy. He has a great book called Liturgy of Death. And he makes this this scathing indictment. He says, if, if in, in, secular, in secular culture, the only value of death is the monetary value of the life insurance policy. And I'm like, what a great statement. He's like, the, that's the only thing that we feel is valuable in death is, is whatever money it comes out of it, right? And and I think you see this in that, like, the, we don't feel that there's any value in mourning, right? And so, eh, mourning is kind of uncomfortable, so let's just minimize that whole mourning thing and so we can move on and be jubilant, right? Like, we just want to be happy and jubilant all the time. So we're going to sing so all of our songs are in major keys and, you know, our jubilant statements of faith and overcoming all of that. And we don't have any time to pray and mourn yeah and and i think that that's i think that's that's a problem yeah well i think uh this this funeral i was part of this uh of my grandmother dying um just this last week it was from i mean 40 hours driving there 
and then three hours in town, um, and then coming back. So well, twenty hours there, twenty hours back. Um, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a, a whole week process. Um, and I feel like that was super healthy. Um, we talked to our kids a, a ton. Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? What did we do? What did we, what did we do? And then, uh, I know there was a ton of time for, um, reconciliation and really starting the healing process, um, mm-hmm. and the grieving process for, um, my mom and her siblings. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think yeah. uh, that was solid. And we've actually bled into my second thing, which I think, a, a Christian funerals need to have which is the idea of mourning and hope and mm. i think a lot of people when they read paul they say when he says we don't mourn they just stop there like we don't mourn like christian funerals are celebrations and their home their homecomings and their celebration i hate to break it to you but chris the ritual of christian funerals is not for the person in, in that's died right they're fine the, the ritual is there for the people that are, have lost something right and so Paul doesn't say we don't mourn. He says we don't mourn as if we have no hope. Yeah. And so the question of what we do, what we display in our Christian services ought to be a mourning tempered by hope and not a lack of mourning. Yeah. And I think it's right. I, it, and this is this is fairly closely tied to this idea of closure, right? That we ought to, we don't, we just don't have, I think, a very strong culture um, especially in the West, of understanding how to mourn over something. Like, how do you understand that there's been a loss? You know, and, and I... Well, I don't think I we have a culture of extremes, period. Like, what celebrating uh, may be a stake. You know, Toby like... Mac told us that we were living in extreme days. Well, we are living in extreme days. Uh, you got that right, Toby. But I think, like, uh, what does it mean for us to have a festival? What does it mean to celebrate? What a feast! We're gonna feast. You're like, whoa! Right. What is what is happening? Or like, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, shouldn't you give that money to the poor? Yeah. So, but then you don't. Uh, but at the same time, you don't have like, you know, M- Moses um, style. You know, like uh, Abraham dies and the country shaves their eyebrows, and you know, there's a there's ashes a ashes on their head. Yeah. Yeah. Forty days of mourning. You know what? Are you serious? Yeah. Like we the flags at half staff. We're mourning the death of a president for a month. Don't push it. You know, it's like that's as far that's that's mourning for yeah. us as a society as flags at half staff. Right. And so this is so this is um something I actually I felt a lot when I, I had a I don't I think I've talked about on the podcast some, but I had a two year period between graduating from with my master's and ending up into my PhD. That was hard. I got a lot of no I applied to a lot of jobs, was, I couldn't get a church job, I got a lot of no's. And I got so tired of the platitudes of people saying things like, well, you know, uh, now you can minister to people who get turned down because God's. And so it's like it's this idea of like you've gone through this so that you can help other people who go through it. But the only purpose of going through it is to help the next person go through it. So it's basically what it says is you don't understand why this is happening. You just want to say something right. But we, but we can't. But what we can't do is mourn, right? Do you like you? We don't have a place of saying, "This is just, this is just a time to be sorrowful," right? Because that's not kind of built into our. And I think that it's actually a gift that church needs to give to society that we need to help them reclaim how to mourn. Yeah, I think it's part of being human is weeping. And so this is this, by the way, a really interesting. So I have a friend who at my PhD program who edited 
of a dissertation that looked at sermons right after the Sunday after 9-11 in the U.S., which is fascinating. And a lot of those sermons were kind of vindictive. They were about God's judgment and this kind of like, and and that's not necessarily mean that those sermons were untrue, but it is interesting that like, that I think we had a hard time, you know, around a major catastrophe like that, just knowing how do we, from a, in a spiritual approach, just feeling sorrow for the for the state of the world and the state of death, right? And this is, you know, we see in Hebrews, like for now, we don't see all things under Christ's feet. And so that, the fact that there is a disconnect between the world, the life of the world to come, and the life now ought to cause us to just to have some mourning. Yeah, I feel like uh, everything isn't fine, and we have to be okay to say that. Yeah. And we can't Mommy's not fix all right. everything. That is not all right, and although they do seem a little weird. <laughs> well, so I mean, but that's not the. I mean, that's not the the mantra for. I mean, it's. It feels like uh, most popular culture is either like super dark or completely in a state of denial. You know, I quoted that song. It's actually interesting. So that's um, Surrender by Cheap Trick, right? Yeah. So it ends, you know, and it, at the end, it just got this like, we're all all right. We're all. And so I was reading an interview with them, how they like, they were surprised. They just kind of put that at the end. But they actually said there's interviews with them saying like people pick this up as like a mantra, like we're all all right. Like, you know, like. Hey, we'll all just pat each other back, saying we're all all right. And I think one of the things that the church needs to be is a place that is emotionally capable of helping people when they realize we're not all all right. Yeah, we're a community of people that's saying we we're tragically broken and flawed and incapable of providing what we need to survey ourselves. It's, Mama's uh, sinful, Dad is sinful. <laughs> they've all got original sin. Oh my goodness! Well, um. Surrender. All right, so last thing, let me just... Uh, let me so just one, two, let's hear three. The last one, I think, is, uh, I would, I so I'd say mourn, closure, and the last one is defiance. So the, oh, the uh, def- Defiance is uh, basically steadfastness in the face of an inevitable outcome would be what defiance would be. And so this is proclaiming Christ's victory as an act of defiance. Uh, there's a certain aspect of a Christian funeral that is a shaking our fist in the face of death. So this is the victorious part of the funeral, right? That we we proclaim in our funeral and the way that we do our practice that we believe that Christ has been victorious over death. Yeah. So in the short term, we believe that death will be victorious. Death will take us unless the Lord, if the Lord tarries, right? And that is going to cause a loss and to us we have to mourn that but it's a mourning in defiance because we know that christ is victorious and so that the the flip side of our mourning is a proclamation of christ's victory and so i think that a lot Mm -hmm. of times we'll talk about proclaiming the gospel but i do think it needs to be a gospel that specifically that there are plenty of times to proclaim the gospel the gospel needs to specifically be the gospel of Christ's victory over death and our and our you know our victory with him in the face of that. That's interesting. Um defiance. Defiance. Um yeah, I think I think that's appropriate language. I mean, you look at uh I mean just this morning we we're looking at um Second Timothy Paul says, I fought the good fight. 
um, there is some uh, pretty aggressive language there. You don't think of you know the fighting Christians, um, but I think I think that's good. I think it's healthy. Yeah. Cool. So uh, so so those are kind of my things. What what would you like to add? Anything else you can think specifically around the the church practice around death? Um, I know we we got a we kind of a couple of specifics we want to talk about. Anything kind of general that you maybe were thinking about from this funeral you were at? Uh, yeah, I think um I have been I was. I was surprised how little practical training I got um, in seminary um, as it relates to uh, funeral practices. Um, but practically the norm for me, and I, I think, I don't know if you find this interesting or not, I hope our listeners do. Um, if someone dies, and uh, typically when someone's deathly ill, um, either hospice comes in or someone's in the hospital, and typically someone is is at the hospital in our, in our context, and then... Um, uh, once someone dies, the funeral home shows up, takes the body away, unless there's some sort of legal issue or some, some, uh, some, some legal, like the police is like, if it's manslaughter or something of those lines, suspected manslaughter. But then, um, they take the body, they care for the body, they preserve the body. Um, and then, um, uh, they meet with the family, they're part of the planning. They might invite the minister into that conversation. Um, who will officiate the ceremony? Uh, but then, oftentimes, the the funeral ceremony is at the funeral home because m- most churches are so large that it would just be awkward to have um, a funeral for someone who's with maybe there's a hundred people show up and there's the you know the auditorium could hold a thousand people. You're like, oh, that's kind of awkward. And so a lot of times people will opt to to have the funeral service at a funeral home, and then the burial will happen. Um, by the funeral home, but so the, the almost the whole process is done post death, is done maybe except for the the person who officiates the wedding is done by somebody outside the church, which is right. which has kind of surprised me, like but like as I think about it, I'm not I don't know how to care for a dead body, I don't know how to yeah. uh what like what happens now, but I don't know that did. Did you receive any training or what has your been? Have you experienced any of that? Yeah. Well, and, and so I, I think you're right. I, and I think this is part of the like sterilization of death that our society has kind of undergone. Right. So, the, you know, the, you hear the beep of the flat line and then the person, if you want, the person can just magically end up in a grave and you don't have to think about it again. And I think for Christians, that's actually I actually think that it's important not that we do these things in connection with a church because it's that's the that's the visible body of christ right and also because it's an acknowledgement that that person isn't leaving the church they're just passing on to a different stage of the church right the victorious church and not the church that's uh, struggling um so i I do think yeah i mean certain so certain like i don't think you have to go and like embalm the person by yourself right you know you can let a professional do that but um i think that there that there's something that there is something that's lost if you just kind of leave it all to the professionals yeah it's uh it's very interesting to me how like an older model of church in america would have graves outside of the church so as you're walking to the church you pass all these graves and then when you get to the church if someone died in the last couple days well, the body is in a casket in the church waiting and like at the viewing, like the body is in there hanging out until it's time to bury the body, um, mm-hmm. which is totally like you'd have to 
I mean, if you want to find a, a dead body pre-buried, it's really hard to come by that these days. <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, that's, that sounds yeah. super weird, but mm-hmm. if, if there's a dead body around here, it's, it's got makeup on and it's wearing its Sunday best, mm-hmm. you know, which is, is yeah. kind of weird. I, I, well, I think the whole thing of viewing is just kind of weird. I think <laughs> viewing is weird. I don't know. Put up a picture, paint a portrait. <laughs> paint yeah. a portrait. Well, is, uh, I mean, it is interesting. Most of our churches don't have, uh, don't have, um, because of land constraints, they don't have, um, graveyards associated with them anymore. Um, it is interesting, by the way, the way the Orthodox Church get around that is they, you only bury people for, I think it's three years, maybe it's 90 days, maybe it's 18 months, but then they dig up the bones and they clean mm. them off and they put them in an ossuary. So all of the people in the graveyard are just those that have recently been buried, which I think is very interesting. That is interesting. Uh, I was reading that, uh, Germany, some cities in Germany don't, you have to, you can only rent, you can't buy funeral spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's bizarre. So, okay, so let's you know this is going to be a question that some people are going to ask. We decided to go ahead and address it, right? So, since we're talking about graves and all that cremation, how oh, do you feel yeah. about that, Andrew? I mean, this is a this is a practical question a lot of people uh, have, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was looking up the cost for uh, a funeral, and it costs seven to nine thousand dollars for the average funeral, which is not exorbitant. To from and then that's if. I mean, if you choose cremation, it's six to seven thousand dollars, which is still pretty. I mean, it's cheaper by a you know maybe one thousand to three thousand dollars cheaper, but which is a lot of money. But um, I think uh, there's something about you know the the dust to dust mentality and the idea of a resurrection that is lost with the Big Lebowski scattering somebody's ashes into the ocean. Um, I think putting somebody into the ground and saying, we are, as humans, apart from God, are dirt. And then saying, one day these bones will rise again, um, being recreated into the, the type of body that God designed us to, um, to, to worship God in a way that we were designed to. I think that's, that's a powerful image for the people who are there. Um, I don't want to say that it's wrong to cremate, but I think uh, um, burial is, there's got some, there is some powerful images there. So I'm actually going to disagree with you on this point. You would say Uh, cremate every time. uh, So I, and so here is my validation, right? So the the traditional church um, statement on this is earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the hope of the resurrection. And that's, and I think that's a, that's a key, right? We, so we proclaim, Ashes to ashes in the hope of the resurrection. Okay, so, and I, so this is actually, I, I know I'm putting myself out of the stream of, for instance, especially, um, I would say, Baptist theology. And so I know that several major Baptist leaders come up and, and argued against this position. And their argument is, like you said, that we want, and I do think you're right, you're absolutely right that whatever we do ought to be the, a strong assertion of the resurrection. Like, uh-huh. that's what we proclaim in Christian death is the resurrection. So it should. But the reality is, you know, Charlemagne's bones are not sitting there in the ground. Let's be honest. David's bones are not sitting there in the ground. You know what they are? They're ashes and they're dust. Yeah. Right? They probably they're probably the cloud above you 
or is the dust <gasps> that used to be King David. Right? Breathe deeply, yeah. So, and so the reality is, if God can put together the dust of David's bones in the resurrection, I think he can put together the ashes of a person that's cremated. And so personally, I, I don't I don't feel that putting a person's body whole into the ground in any way proclaims more faith in the resurrection than putting someone's ashes in the ground. Because maybe a little way. I, I mean, I would say just maybe not a significant way, but I would say maybe in a in some sense they do. And okay, and so I guess so. That's for me. If you feel like it's a better proclamation, I think you probably ought to spend the money and do it. I don't right. feel like it's any, uh, it's it's any better. So I have absolutely zero problem with any sort of cremation. And again, because I think it fits, it it fits in. I think specifically with cremation, it fits in with, um, you know, again the truth in on on Ash Wednesday, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But the formula is, you know, they make, um a cross out of ash on your forehead by the way the i just found this out the way they place the ashes come from they normally they burn the palm trees from last most churches burn the palm that branches from last year's palm sunday and they make ash and that's and and as they make the cross it's remember that thou art dust and to dust you shall return hmm. you know we're going to we're going to end up as dust and ash and so I don't really see much point, much difference if we speed that process. So it doesn't bother me. That's interesting. I, I mean, I really, I really think that it proclaims just as much hope in the resurrection that God's powerful enough to put together your ash as he is he's powerful enough to put together the dust that you're going to be if the Lord tarries, right? That is fascinating. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's not something that I would say this is wrong. And I think even, so like, I think it was uh, John Piper that came out with that article um, arguing super strong. I was surprised at how strongly he came off. But even his end, in his conclusion, he was like, you know, churches should help out people who can't afford it to be buried. But, you know, it's just, you know. And I'm like, you came out super strong, man. Like, and then you, you lean back at the very conclusion. But yeah. I think, uh, it, you know, it may be a thing that depends on the context, but I do think there is a practicality issue that isn't a significant either. Like, the, there are lots of people dying. <laughs> lots of people. So, by the way, this is the prayer from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And I, and I don't want to double down just on Anglican. It's just the Anglican liturgy is what I'm most familiar with. Um, so I do like the prayer a lot. And I know it's it's similar in the current one. Uh, For as much as it hath pleased the Lord Almighty in his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother or sister, we commit their body to the ground, earth to earth, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, ensure in certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile bodies into his glorious body. And I think that's and I and I think that as long as whatever practice we're doing, as long as it is proclaiming what's said right there, right? That in we 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 proclaim we are of dust we are made, and to dust we return, but in the hope of the, the certain hope of the resurrection. That Christ will change their that Christ will change their bodies, and that's what that's what at the end of the day that's what matters. I think it's interesting as much as God desired to take the soul of our dear brother and sister. That's so interesting to be like he took he took this person's soul to him, um, but we still have this person's body. That's very interesting language. There's one other thing I want to point out here that I think is really interesting. That I I think it's actually not a bad idea to pray for God to receive the soul in mercy. 
Uh, and I think a lot of evangelicals would want to say, well, God's promise that he would. <laughs> that ship so has sailed. Pray for <laughs> yeah. it. But I, I do think it's important for us to say that if God accepts us into his kingdom, even if he promised it, it's only based on his mercy. And so I think it's actually good for us to acknowledge that even though he promised to accept us in his kingdom, if we believe that it's still only based upon his mercy that he does it. And I think that's a fair, that's a good thing for us to remember. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder, like when Billy Graham or whatever, like hero of the faith dies to say, God, accept Billy Graham mercifully in spite of Billy Graham. That's like such a humbling proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and again, like I just, I love the prayer. Um, not, not counting our, not counting our merits, but forgiving our trespasses. It's like yeah. God accept us, not based on my merits. Don't count my <laughs> merits. Just forgive my trespasses. I, I mean, it's. Uh, I feel like there's there's things in Scripture where we call. I mean, it, it's weird to say. In, I mean, from my perspective, to say I'm going to ask God to do something He's already promised to happen. Um, but as I look in scripture, it says, God, you know, in the Psalms, God, you've promised this, um, prove yourself to be faithful by doing this. So, I mean, I think we do have a precedent in the Psalms, um, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Sure. But I do think there's just the, the queasiness in me that says we can't pray people into heaven. You know, that's just, that's not how it works. Yeah. But I, I think, but again, I think it's never inappropriate for us to ask God to be merciful. Yeah, I think um, I think it's great. Yeah, last thing, and I meant, but we we do want to talk a little bit about sickness uh, before we get too long. I do want to mention I mentioned them before, but I th- I I think Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, Easter are important parts of church practice around death. I think that the whole Lenten season ought to be a time where every year we think through the concepts. So. so um, I actually did, if you didn't check it out, I did a, uh, on Ash Wednesday, I did a Facebook live stream, just a couple of verses about so how, good. you know, Ash Wednesday proclaims ashes, you know, like, like Moses said, we're ashes to ashes. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, but we do that in the hope of Christ's resurrection. So I, I do think that, um, if your church doesn't practice as you personally, I, I listener, I think ought to consider the, the, the run up to Easter as a time to consider all these things, consider your mortality so that you can think about reconciling, consider mourning for loss and proclaiming Christ. I think these are all sort of things that we ought to proclaim every year in the season and not just wait till somebody dies. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, well, there is a really good sermon by Andy Stanley. Um, I would just Google uh, teach us number of our days, Andy Stanley, and that comes very highly recommended. Yeah. It's, here's a fun thought, and this is, we can we can blow right past this. But traditionally, people were baptized on Easter, so all of the church's baptisms happened on Easter. Maybe it would be interesting if you, as a church, just cremated everyone who died who died in the year oh. and then just buried every just bury everyone on like Ash Wednesday <laughs> or on like Good Friday. Just wait and bury them all at the same time. You baptize and bury them times. <laughs> That's so that. goofy. Um, well, so I have a nonprofit idea I want to throw your way. Um, I'm so not it's a, a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Uh, I am just an almond not farmer. Profited oh my goodness! Well, things. there's a uh, so it's really expensive to bury someone. I mean, that's just it's almost ten thousand dollars for the average funeral. Seven to nine thousand dollars. That's obnoxious, is what that is. That's so much money. And the average American has less than five thousand in their savings account. And so, like, 
we're having to sell some plasma or like a TV or, you know, like we've got to scrape some some CDs together. To, to I mean, like that's that's some serious cash. And so my my idea is for um, churches or nonprofits to say, um, we're going to have a burial program. So a church like buys a what is it in Luke where uh, or Acts whenever Judas hangs himself. And mm-hmm. his guts spill open, um, and they have like a poor cemetery. Um, mm-hmm. Why doesn't the church own? I mean, it may be super expensive inside yeah. the city, but buy an acre, of, you know, yeah. five miles, ten I, miles out of town. I I actually completely agree. I actually think in all of these th- uh, these major life transitions, I think the church ought part of the church's ministry ought to be financially assisting in them. So I actually think churches ought to be financially assisting in uh, weddings and burials and all of those things as part of being a family. Well, I mean, like, for a wedding, you can get bananas. Like, what do you need for a wedding? Sure. It, a, you don't need much, but for a well, funeral... I guess I'm thinking more, I'm think, talking more like, yeah, just, like, providing... But the, the idea of, like, providing space and helping with, you know, with the, the, the thing, I think that's actually... I think you're right. Okay, yeah. Um, but, but I think... Uh, so I had the idea of a, like, a food truck, Right. And I think the one thing that a funeral parlor or a funeral home offers is they have people who are trained to care for bodies. Um, they come pick up the body and they have a hearse that can deliver the body, mm-hmm. right? Like you can meet in the field somewhere for free and have a funeral service. It's like you, if you get an outdoor wedding, you can have an outdoor funeral. And mm-hmm. you can bury somebody in any field. Any field in the world will do. And it's you, you don't have to have a crematorium. And you don't have to spend five thousand dollars on a beautiful box. Literally, get a pine box. The only people that say you can't bury someone in a pine box is the funeral home because they want to sell you a thousand, you know, multi-thousand dollar thing. Yeah. By By the way, all I can think of when you uh, when a food saying, truck, uh, food truck is just it's just the middle of funeral. Someone saying ice cold beer. <laughs> so get like uh, a, I mean, yeah. get a get a food truck. Put a put a freezer where you can hold two or three bodies. To where, like, when someone dies, this truck drives Oh, you're talking up. about putting people in the food truck. I thought you were talking about providing food. You're talking <laughs> no, about, like... No, no. <laughs> Turn it into, like, a... Uh, wh- what's it called? Where the you, thing you, is, Andrew Yates, you're not necessarily reflecting... <laughs> I said that's an amazing idea. Yeah, I'm serious. And you can, like, have, like, a, a, a super cool environment where you can care for the body <laughs> and prepare... You can have, you can have like, a, 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 a casket thing going on there where you can, like, have some tools there and some wood stored... Um, I think you could, I mean, for, for the cost of one funeral, you could, or maybe two or three funerals, you could save hundreds of thousands of dollars for widows and orphans, you know? That is funny. So if you're, if you're interested, shout out to me, let's work out some details. Uh, On this related note, and this will transition us to our next one. So all the time, people, I think. I, they feel like this pressure, oh, I want to do something really meaningful with my life. And so I'm going to go to seminary or I'm going to, you know, be go be a missionary or something like that. And so I actually think that there are all sorts of professions, which I think are great professions if you want to have a, like a unique Christian witness. Like if you're not sure what you want to do with your life, like go into one of these to have a unique Christian witness. So things like car mechanic. I think a car mechanic is a great like if you're not if you're like if you've got a high school senior that likes to work with their hands and they're not sure they want to go to co- to college, my tell me a car mechanic because nothing is a better witness, right? 
than being than an honest car mechanic. Yeah. Another one though, actually, if you if someone I think is emotionally very is an emotionally healthy person, and they have a lot of compassion and they want a uniquely sort of Christian way to use that. I think encouraging people to be hospice care workers is actually a really really unique, sure, um, sacramental sort of vocation that you can have uh, to help to help people deal with the sick and the dying that, that that's an amazing christian wisdom we can have through our hospice care workers and so i actually think if you so if you don't know what you want to do with your life or if you know uh 18 year old doesn't know what to do with their life that you feel is a compassionate sort of person encourage them to go be a hospice care worker and i think that's you know just as important as being a missionary i think it's so i mean you are a, a local missionary i think it's i think it's solid but um with hospice you've got i mean you're dealing with people who are sick um, just this, uh, just this, this weekend, um, we've had a lady that's, uh, that's really not doing well. The doctor's saying, uh, I don't know, we'll help you, but it's not looking good. So she's mm-hmm. asked, um, some elders and pastors to come pray over her. Um, and I think it's awesome. Um, in the past, I have had a lady come up and ask to anoint her with oil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she just asked the staff generally, Hey, can I come up and have be anointed with oil? And the staff was like, uh, what? And then I was like, yeah, that's in the Bible, you know, like they were like, what? It's in the Bible. And in James, you know, it talks, is anyone sick? Let him come to the elders, be anointed with oil. And so I took it as an opportunity not just to obey scripture, um, but mm-hmm. to the point of the staff, hey, uh, this woman, as far as we can tell, she's not committed any sin. And and we just want to proclaim, as far as we can tell, um, this is not a result of any evil that she's done. And God is calling her to repentance yeah. Um, the, and the verse, by had, the way, is, is so just uh, so James five thirteen to fourteen. Are say you it. sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. Yeah, and so, anyone who's committed sins will be forgiven. So I think, um, you know, what does it mean to be anointed with oil in that culture? I think it's a symbol of God's blessing, and then I think it's a symbol of. Or it is literally medicine. So, like, you have the Good Samaritan anoints a guy's injuries with oil as an antibiotic. I don't know. But so I think the elders have to make sure that somebody gets the medical attention they need. So if there's somebody who's sick, like, hey, let's get you to a doctor. But at the same time, if it's appropriate, we need to remind you that you are not outside of God's blessing. As far as we can tell, God is still fighting for you, and you're not, like, choosing to reject God's will. So uh, this is interesting. So we've kind of transitioned here from kind of church practices around death to church practices around the sick. And so I actually was thinking about this a lot this week, Andrew, because um, I'm in a class uh, that's the Catholic with all the Catholic. I'm in the class in the class in the Catholic. Take your time. That's a lot to say. (laughs) I'm in a class with the Catholic catechumens. Uh, They're not catechumens. They're seminarians. What we're talking. it's, it's It's a it's a class on sacraments. And so this week we were talking about anointing. Uh, and so it actually forced me to really think about this this practice. Uh, and so here's a, a couple. Uh, so I, I actually agree with what you're just thinking. So here's some of my thoughts from this week. First of all, I think that this is something that's in Scripture and we need to deal with it. And I don't think it's enough <laughs> of dealing with it. I don't think I don't think putting people's name on an, on a church-wide email listserv is the same as this practice. Well, I do think it's it's pretty intense when the Bible says ask a sh- that person should call the elders and the elders should go to them. 
I think you're literally visiting people who are not able to join the community. Um, and if, if I mean, practically, if mm-hmm. elders are not able to do this, it may not be a, a an explicitly biblical church model, right. which I think is, is pretty intense. I agree. Yes, I do agree with that. Um, so first of all, I think what you said is I think that I would not take this as a substitute for medical care, but I would not consider medical care as a substitute for the church praying and anointing the sick. Sure. Going to the doctor is not substitute for the prayers of the church sure um second i think what you said is this idea of examination for sin and this is this is really important because people want to the people point to jesus and when they say who sinned and jesus said so it's, it, nobody sinned right they want to point to that and kind of use the general principle that nobody gets sick because of sin i hate to break it to them even in this passage and all across the new testament god or the the, the bible has an understanding that people can get sick because of sin. And I think we're so fast to move past that, that you're not sick because of sin. Okay, I don't think that every time someone has sick or someone has a mental illness that we should just say, well, that's because they're sinful or their parents are sinful. But I don't know if it's something we should, I think we should take sin a little bit more seriously and not just brush past this. So I actually think there is a case, you know, in like 1 Corinthians, it's pretty obvious, like with the Lord's Supper, Something mm-hmm. is. There have been choices that have been made. There have been situations that have been allowed to exist. For this reason, some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you mm-hmm. are sick and have even died. Like yeah. there are physical manifestations yeah. as a result right. of your choices. And so I think it's it's interesting that uh, we had um, a we we had a discussion in, um, before like, we had to sign some documents about not about. Uh, I guess sensitivity training from <laughs> what? the Canada from Canada that we had to do, and everybody was really worried about not shame. Oh, we don't want to shame people. Don't shame. And we had this uh, very anti shaming. Like, don't you know? You don't want to cast any shame on. Somebody. I don't want to shame anybody. And I think, but I think that that's led us away from the fact that when trouble comes into our life, you ought to at least consider the fact that it is within the realm of possibility that it could be a consequence for sin in your life. And so I do think that one of the ministers of the elders, and that would include the pastors or the church leaders, I'm just going to say the church leaders, is for that person to confess their sins before the Lord. Not necessarily because they're correlated, but it is a good opportunity to confess our sins. And then after we confess our sins and we're reminded of God's forgiveness, to pray and do do some sort of anointing. So I think that that's great. Now, what about the oil, though? And this is the thing I go around with, right? Do you think so? Because we're really fast to say, well, we don't have to use wine. We can use grape juice because of cultural means, right? Should you do? But when it comes to oil, for some reason, we're like, oh, we'll still do. Well, so I, do, you I th- do think with communion, you have the the flex. You do have a little wiggle room because um, mm-hmm. fruit of the vine. Okay, it's if it's super new wine, well, it's not alcoholic. Um, if, and I think it's, I mean, the main point is the cup, not necessarily what's the contents of the cup. So, I mean, I, you know, okay. I feel a little less, but when By the, the way, Bible says, uh, well, yeah, I, I've retracted a little bit of my state, my agreement with you on that. I do think <laughs> the, the contents of the cup is more important than I assented it to it being, well, but that okay. episode, that episode has uh, sailed. So as, as far as I would say, sure. I think it doesn't have to be. Olive okay. oil, canola oil, grapeseed oil, but I do think mm-hmm. there is symbolism with oil. 
Um, and right. I do think that's, that is important. I think, um, uh, it's messy, you know, it's like, it gets everywhere, but I think it's, um, uh, it is important. I, I did, I got in a lot of trouble. Well, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. I caught a lot of, you know, the ribbing because, um, I put some more, probably a tablespoon of oil in this woman's head and well, it spilled down and got on the floor and it was like, you know, wood, laminate floors, whatever. Um, people are like, oh, okay, let's, uh, we got to get something to clean that up. And there's like an oil stain later in a couple of days. Hey, who's, who's oil is all over the place. But, uh, I will say that, um, we just, let's obey. We don't, we don't have to understand to obey and it doesn't really hurt to do oil unless there's a reason where it's like, you can't do oil. Why would you not do oil? So I, I do think that, I, I think that there's an interesting aspect here. So in the Old Testament, we have a couple places. So, for instance, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. You have First uh, Samuel, when uh, David was anointed with oil, and from that day forward, the spirit was with him, that there seems to be a case for a connection. And a lot of the church has traditionally seen oil as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Sure. And so I do think that there is something about oil in particular that you can make the case that it is a um it's not that we don't really believe that it has a lot of medicinal use, but that it is a helpful symbol and there's not really a more natural substitute. Like if there were a more natural substitute, like okay, if you want to anoint them with the essential oil of a mint plant, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure the essential oil people sure. that. Sure. Uh, but but you know, but I think that with in the absence of a more natural symbol, I think it's good to keep the one of oil that we have. Um, so I was actually thinking about this, Andrew. I actually think it'd be really great. So I'm a proponent of, of celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. I actually think it'd be a great practice if you just had some elders in corners of your church, right? That if that if people were sick, they you know they took the Lord's Supper and they could go to the elders and the elders could actually like pray and anoint them. Um, you know, make the cross on their head or something with the oil, right? And just actually do this in the context of our church services. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I just, as I practically, what did I do? I just poured a little oil on her head. That's really what mm-hmm. happened. Um, I didn't put a sign of the cross or anything like that. And I don't know that'd be, that's right or wrong. I, I think. I, so, by the spirit. way, I like the sign of the cross. I'm again, I, I'm a huge verbiage, fan. <laughs> well, the, the, the traditional verbiage for it is, uh, we, is we march you with the sign of the cross. We, we make the sign of the cross marking you as God's own. Sure. So I think, you know, I think it might be weird to like pour, and to, some people might find it weird, like pour oil on their head. So that's why I was kind of thinking like you make the cross. You know, That's marking that person as God's own, anointing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, and asking for it seems like a natural sort of way to do the ritual if you're looking for a way to do it. But I liked the idea. I guess more the question was, I liked the idea of actually like having elders because I, you know, this is interesting. I've seen a lot of churches where like we're going to have people up front that you can come up and pray for them, and nobody ever does it because the music is loud and like no one wants to like stand in front of them. You know what I'm saying? Like no, I've yeah. never seen anybody like actually go forward. Well, and I if, think it would be cool if you had sorry, this face if you had like an actual church culture where people who were sick would go and like let the elders pray for them and be anointed like in the context of the Lord's Supper. It, well, first off, it would be funny if people took communion and then went forward to the Lord's Supper because they'd be like sneezing all over the communion wafers or whatever it is, getting everybody sick. Oh, I'm gonna go in front of this guy. Oh my. 
But I, I mean, you look at James, it says they need to call the elders and the elders need to go to them. And I think there's something about I'm calling elders to me after I've had a time of self-examination. Um, I think there's there is a place of ownership there, but I think we do we could do in my church a better job of saying, hey, if you're sick and you've gone to the doctors and you don't know what's up, just you need to call somebody. Like, mm-hmm. don't do this by yourself. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think um, making it a more regular part, a more public part of your church um, is probably healthy. And I think there's some discussions that could be had here, too. There's, you know, obviously a lot of discussion right now about mental health. Um, and I do think that this is something we could put yeah. into the discussion. about. like, I don't think anointing with oil is going to make someone that's bipolar, not bipolar anymore. Someone that, that has clinical depression, not depressed anymore. But I mean, this could be, I mean, I, I think this could be a practice. Like, if, you know, if, if you have someone in church that struggles with depression, that they know that if they're in a time where they're struggling with depression, they could call the elders and the elders will come to them and pray for them. And I think this is actually could be, I think it's a practice we need to focus more on, even with how we talk about how we deal with mental health. I think what, I think part of what goes into all of this discussion is just not sterilizing sickness and death as much as we have, right? Like we just kind of like, we we lie to people that they're not dying until the moment they, they're dead, right? Like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll probably recover and you're dead, right? Like Ugh. we're just kind of lying to people, um, you know, instead of like, you know, there's a there's a song by John Foreman I love called Learning How to Die. And he's like, you know, he's like, and basically the song is like, I thought all this time I was learning how to live, but really I was just learning how to die. Yeah, and there's something hard. to there's something to that that like really like all of us are just learning how to die and how to die well, right? So mm-hmm. let's stop glossing over the fact that we're all dying and just embrace that as part of the church experiences that we together are learning how to die. Yeah, you ultimately will die. Well, I mean, even like Lazarus that Christ raised from the dead or the woman that Jesus healed who had the flow of blood or all the blind people, all these people eventually died um, mm-hmm. and they will be resurrected in the last day. But apart from Christ, there's only two others by my count that I know from from Scripture are still, or three others that are, are no, two others that were resurrected um, before Christ's return. I will say that the woman, the one woman that I've anointed so far with oil, um, she's, as far as I can tell, recovered still from her, her cancer. And so I, I wouldn't put it past uh, someone with bipolar disorder saying, hey, I've got a, a sickness, an illness, a brokenness. Something that's that's not how I was designed yeah. to operate. I wouldn't say don't call the elders um, in faith, but yeah, I think ultimately my hope is not in the oil or the elders. My my hope is in Christ. I think that in faith is really important. We, we don't want to get – these are not magical talismans. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting that when we pray, especially for the sick, we like to give God lots of outs. So if then nothing changes, we don't feel bad. So God, in your mercy, if it's your will – if you feel like it, like, you know, and I love that if it's your wills is a pious way of not having faith. And I'm overstating that a little bit, right? But the reality, I think we, we'd like to throw in these if it's your will so that if nothing happens, we don't have to feel bad. We don't have to deal with the fact that God didn't answer the prayer that we, the way we, he didn't give us what we asked in that way, right? But I think there's a place to have some faith of praying in faith that God would heal. And... If he doesn't, like, even if he doesn't, we'll trust him, right? But actually having a little bit of faith that God has the ability to heal, but to do this in a little bit more formalized way than just kind of like, oh, would you pray for me? Like, let's actually get the elders and our church shepherds together. <laughs> sure. And do it, like, right? 
Yeah. No, I think. So I think if you're it's sick powerful. out there, call your elders and ask them to come anoint you uh, just to see what happens. Just to don't see. Delay. Don't delay. Um, uh, you know, I'd be interested if, uh, yeah, well, uh, I wonder if there's any like statistics out there, like your buddy who's doing the survey on 9 11 uh, mm-hmm. sermons. I wonder how many surveys have been done on, hey, how many people have you baptized? How many times do y'all do communion? How many people have you anointed with oil? Uh, and how did that work out? And I'm I'm going to be, I mean, this is completely serious. If you are a listener and you or, you know, a, a, a spouse or a child of mine, it like has a sickness that they have struggled with that is serious to you. I mean, this is done. I mean, it doesn't have to be. You, okay. You know what I'm saying, Mike? Yeah. Call your elders. This is in scripture. I mean, again, it's not, it's <laughs> the not new a Testament, yeah. but it's really there. And, you know, and I, 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 it, it's interesting that we have verses that we're okay ignoring. You know, we're not okay ignoring certain ones, but we're okay not calling the elders and having them anoint us for it's sake. So, so do it. Like, you know, if you, if you have someone with a chronic illness, like call the elders and ask them to come and anoint you and do it in faith. And, you know, it's God, funny to think God about how, how society has changed. Like, call the elders in a first century is like, help, Elder Bill, help. But you're literally calling. Today, I can just get on my cell phone or I can say, Alexa, call Elder call Bill. <laughs> call the elders, hey, Alexa. That's an app. call me on my cell phone. <laughs> uh, well, that's, I, 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 think that I've, I think I've exhausted everything that I had on my, I've got some notes here. I think that's everything I, I do just want also last thing uh if you don't know who your elders are that's shame also on a problem. you yeah shame that's on also you a problem <laughs> you can you can do better uh, yes. whoever you are so we didn't so something we'll probably have to punt to a different episode we we, we want to talk about eventually is the idea of, of children dying which i think is a, is a yeah. different thing yeah. um man that that is really tough it is really fascinating that uh our society i think holds up children as kind of this ideal that it's like the one thing we think should be perfect right like children shouldn't be killed children children like as innocent as anybody is right and so when children do die it's like it's 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 a very shocking thing yeah no i totally agree Um, with that and i think that there's something you know i didn't i didn't realize i mean i hope i'm not you know bringing up any ptsd for any of our listeners but you know i didn't realize how many people have miscarriages until my friend started, you know, have trying to have kids. And then, you know, you have a friend or two that has a miscarriage and all of a sudden everybody steps up like, Oh, we had miscarriages. And you know, it's like, it's something we, nobody talks about, you know, it's like in hushed corners, nobody talks about it. I'm like, how can we, how are we supposed to bring healing? If like yeah. nobody talks about it. I, I would say uh, nearly every woman that I work with, and almost every woman that I've ever worked with on a church staff has had a miscarriage. And it's like, wow, really? Man, I had no idea that there were such intense emotional experiences going on around me. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm so sorry, you know? And I think something that goes with that is, is I think for sickness and death, again, to remember that we're talking about church practice, not personal practice, right? That is, it's easy. It's it, the easy thing to do is to suffer in silence, um, and I think that we need to to get over ourselves, <laughs> put it bluntly enough, to bring the church into our pain and suffering, 
AI well, I wouldn't say it's easy to suffer in silence. I think it's just it may be more natural, and it may yeah. be. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I yeah. thank uh, you for, I, yeah. for the more for the more for the kinder wording. Um, <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, and I think uh, learning to let the church suffer with us. Yeah, it's not it's not good to be alone in our joy or in our sadness. Um, don't uh, what is the old cowboy song? Don't drink alone, but don't don't cry alone either. You know, that's uh. That's just and healthy. Only die alone if you have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, that's that's all I got. I think that that wraps it up. Um, I think we've pretty much solved everything around death <laughs> and dying uh, and sickness and it, health. If if you have something about death or dying or sickness or health, uh, hit us up. Uh, probably Facebook is the best way to do it. We're, we're posting a couple things on Facebook here and there. Um, you can just uh, search Backrow Theologians, uh, and that that should come up. Or or you can email us at backrowtheologians at gmail dot com with any thoughts or comments. Hey, and thinking of Facebook, so something that I'm going to be doing over the, this series on Facebook Live is I'm going to be doing some live streams talking about different church traditions. There we go. And so this uh, this is kind of a, this discussions have reminded me just how big the church is. So I'm going to be going through stuff like what's the Assyrian Church of the East and what's the Armenian Church? What's the Armenian Church? What's the difference between Armenians and Armenians? And I, my hope is it gives people a little bit of a picture of just how big the church is and how many different traditions there are and kind of sorted through some of that. So I'm going to so be big. doing a little bit of that on uh, on Facebook. So if you don't do Facebook, maybe just check in every once in a while and see if there's anything new to, uh, to watch because you can watch even if you're not a Facebook user. I'll be heckling you. Don't worry. Um, it'll be great. Um, I hope you found this uh, helpful. I know that I have um, just, just uh, being able to bounce some ideas off of you and hear yours. Um, but we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks. Until then, though, this has been Yates. And this has been Ian. Thanks, guys, for joining us on The Back Row. Godspeed. Thanks for listening. Any views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily represent all of Christendom, so we encourage you to read and study for yourself and form your own thoughts. Special thanks to our production engineer, Johan Benjamin. The music was composed by Simon Yao. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of The Back Row Theologians. It's too late to apologize. It's too late. I said it's too late to apologize. It's too late. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Ranger, I don't know what's going on. But whoa.